Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. My good friend, Dr. Nesan Rafati, is with us today to talk about the big issue in the news right now, the Iran nuclear deal. Nesan is the senior Iran analyst at the International Crisis Group and has previously worked at the RAND Corporation, the U.S. Institute of Peace, and the IFRI think tank in Paris, France. He also holds a doctorate from Oxford University and is only the second person I know that speaks fluent Persian, Arabic, and Hebrew, along with the Queen's English, of course. But first, a few quick thoughts from me. However implausible it may have seemed earlier this summer, a restored deal between Iran and the world powers, in particular the U.S., now seems to be back on the agenda in a real way, perhaps in a matter of weeks. This has led to howls of preemptive protest from critics of the original deal signed by President Barack Obama in 2015, critics that continue to include the Israeli government. The Iran nuclear issue writ large can be analyzed, I think, in many different ways. Technically, i.e., number of centrifuges, amount of enriched uranium, and so on, militarily, diplomatically, strategically. But I'd argue that the nuclear issue also has to be understood politically. That is, as a hot-button domestic political issue inside Israel, and also, by the way, inside Washington. Just look at the events of the past week in Israeli politics. Prime Minister Yair Lapid and opposition leader Benjamin Netanyahu are both very much against any new deal with Iran. But they're also both engaged in a very public battle around the politics and optics of this opposition to any new deal. Lapid and the Israeli government have been briefing and speaking out constantly on the issue on a near daily basis. Trust me, I know. At least three senior Israeli security officials have been to Washington just in the past week and a half, everything to show the Israeli public that they're doing their utmost to influence the Biden administration. Netanyahu, for his part, keeps alleging that Lapid and the government have fallen asleep at the wheel and have, quote unquote, allowed the U.S. and Iran to reach a deal. Bibi presumably wants more speeches and more bombast and more opposition, like he himself did in 2015, after which, of course, a deal was also signed. This public battle reached its peak a few days ago when Lapid invited Bibi for a security briefing, as is customary, by the way, between a prime minister and opposition leader. And Bibi agreed. For only the second time since he lost power last year, Netanyahu deigned to meet the actual and serving prime minister. After which, Bibi predictably took to the media and said that he left the briefing with Lapid more concerned than when he went in. Everything to undermine Lapid's position and gravitas as prime minister. Lapid, hewing to his more consistent and statesmanly position, said that on matters of security, all of Israel was united, that there was no daylight between the government and opposition with regard to Iran, everything to minimize Netanyahu using the issue as a political hammer against him. In other words, there is a high stakes and highly political dance going on inside Israel right now with regard to the Iran nuclear issue that has, I'd argue, very little to do with the US, very little to do with Iran, very little to do even with the merits of any renewed deal, and everything to do with the looming Israeli election on November 1st. Let's get to Nissan Rafati.
Hi, Nason. Welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. Hi, Neri. Thanks. Good to be with you. Uh, it's really our pleasure. I know you're a man in demand these days. So a lot to get into this episode, trying to explain this really complex and oftentimes very technical issue. Uh, so we're going to make this as clear and painless as possible, I hope, for our listeners. And I wanted to start here with some context. Uh, 2015, obviously, the original Iran nuclear deal called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, was signed by Obama. Then in 2018, uh, Donald Trump withdrew from the deal, uh, blew up the deal, uh, in large part due to the lobbying efforts of then-Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, and then when President Joe Biden takes office in 2021, he says clearly uh, he wants to return to the deal, and negotiations have been ongoing ever since then. So first question to you, Nason, why way back then did Obama cut the original nuclear deal? Uh, in other words, what was the threat that the U.S. was trying to forestall back then, uh, putting the Iranian nuclear program back in a so-called box? Well, in 2015, the, the process, the, the context starts a little bit earlier. From the, the early 2000s, we start to um, uh, contend with, you know, what is you can broadly talk about as the Iran nuclear threat. Uh, that starts uh, with disclosures of, of Iranian nuclear activity during the, the, the Bush era, and then it continues through the Obama administration. And um, it's not just the U.S. Uh, we, we have the Europeans that are engaged in this process from the early 2000s, in particular, the, the British, the Germans, and the French, or the E3. And then that process expands out. And so um, you during the Obama administration, you have this, this cohort known as the P5 plus one, the five permanent members of the Security Council, and Germany um, negotiating with Iran over its nuclear program. And, uh, you know, the, the question of why I think comes down to, um, I guess you could call it a, a hierarchy of, of um, threats. I mean, uh, every uh, U.S. president since 1979, so that's Carter, Reagan, uh, George Bush Sr., uh, Clinton, and the first Bush administration have all dealt to one degree or another with, with what you can call, you know, the Iran uh, challenge or, or, or the Iran problem set. Um, they've all, in their own ways, had brief periods of engagement or, or, or tactical negotiations with the Iranians. But um, by the time the Obama administration came into office and, and you know, really got into these negotiations, including through uh, back channel talks directly with the Iranians, it was the nuclear issue that was considered the existential threat, the strategic threat that um, uh, was uh, seen as something of a of a, of a different uh, nature than uh, what previous administrations had had addressed. Now, previous administrations, you know, looked at Iran's uh, human rights record, looked at Iran's regional behavior, its support for proxies and partners across the region, its its anti-U.S. Uh, worldview, but it was the, the prospect of, of Iran acquiring or, or being capable of acquiring a nuclear weapon that took precedence in this in this hierarchy of threat for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, the, the potential acquisition and deployment of a nuclear weapon. Um, secondly, the potential of, even if they don't deploy, having a nuclear weapon as an umbrella of, to, to carry out their other actions. And 
as another factor, you could look at the, the potential non-proliferation uh, arms race that could result if Iran had a weapon in, in terms of other regional states potentially also eyeing up um, similar kinds of, uh, of capabilities. So the 2015 deal um, was, you know, it's not a peace agreement, right? It's an arms control agreement. And uh, what it did was put in place restrictions on uh, Iran's nuclear activity in return for relief from uh, US and, and UN and EU sanctions that had been put in place as this crisis had built up over the course of, of uh, several years. Now, it's... Um, you know, it, it's a it's a question of of how much that deal could have gone beyond an arms control agreement after it was signed. Um, you know, whether or not uh, it would have provided a platform to engage uh, Iran and, and the U.S. on non-nuclear issues, but the deal was ultimately implemented in 2016. And uh, by November of 2016, uh, President Trump is is elected and, and he says on the campaign trail that he's going to uh, withdraw from the agreement. So if there was a, uh, a notion of uh, being able to expand on it or, or start to discuss non-nuclear uh, issues on a more adversarial footing, uh, whether it was just fatigue at the time or the lack of interest on the Iranian side or on the U.S. side, that that's all... Uh, spilt milk under the bridge uh, in, in a certain sense. Um, but I think that's the original uh, motivation for the deal is um, seeing this hierarchy of threat where the nuclear uh, potential nuclear acquisition uh, by Iran is uh, seen as a game changer. And this deal, which you know is over 150 pages of very technical text, coming down to a very simple core bargain of nuclear restrictions in, re- in, in exchange for sanctions relief. Right. And... So this deal was signed, was implemented, did hold uh, until, like you said, President Trump uh, elected to office. And then in 2018, uh, like we said, he withdraws from the deal. Uh, Trump uh, called the deal uh, the worst deal ever signed, uh, but that uh, he, the brilliant dealmaker that he is, uh, I think in his own mind, uh, would come into office, tear up the deal, and then force Iran uh, back to the table to sign a better deal. And in order to, I guess, achieve this lofty goal, uh, Trump and his administration undertook this policy called maximum pressure uh, to force Iran back to the table on more favorable terms. How did all this work out for the Trump administration? Max pressure, uh, more sanctions, more military threats? Well, let me start first with with problematizing uh, a little bit uh, what happens before uh, Trump's withdrawal. Um, Trump's withdrawal uh, comes after a period of several months where he says to Congress and to the Europeans that, um, you know, I, I expect uh, better terms from an agreement. And actually, over a course of a few months, the Trump administration and the E3 actually have pretty substantive discussions over uh, what a successor agreement or an expanded JCPOA um, can uh, can 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 look to uh, achieve, and you know even even the E3, and we've we've heard President Macron uh, talk uh, talk about this, we've heard Prime Minister Johnson talk about this, uh, and this was one of the kind of philosophical divergences that we ended up seeing in in May 2018 is that what the E3 would say is that we we recognize that there's always room for improvement, that the uh, nuclear deal can be uh, strengthened or lengthened in terms of some of the sunsets, um, that there are other elements of Iranian 
uh, regional behavior in particular that are of concern. It's ballistic missile development. It's, it's uh, support for regional proxies and so on. But the E3, the E3 argument was that you don't um, throw out the baby with the nuclear bathwater, that uh, you, you can try to build on this agreement and that provides a more constructive way forward than trying to start uh, from scratch or abandoning the deal that, according to the Trump administration, was actually being implemented correctly by, by Iran through 2019, actually. Um, but after those uh, discussions, Trump decided to pull out of the agreement anyway uh, in May 2018. And subsequently, we see the administration lay out uh, what its objectives are. And, and Secretary Pompeo lays out uh, 12 demands. Some people would, would uh, add, add another demand, a 13th demand. But uh, basically what the, what the administration's contention is, is that uh, the JCPOA only focused on one thing, which was the nuclear, and it didn't do a great job of it in their view. And that uh, pulling out of the deal and applying um, sweeping unilateral U.S. sanctions, um, so that's sanctions that had been lifted by the JCPOA and then layered on with with hundreds of additional designations, uh, would lead Iran to uh, agree to a better nuclear deal. Um, limit its ballistic missile program, stop supporting uh, groups like the Houthis in Yemen, the uh, the militias in Iraq, uh, the Assad government, Hezbollah, Hamas, and also improve its its domestic human rights. Let's not mince words here. Pompeo's 12 demands were calling for a wholesale shift 180 degrees in Iran's foreign and security posture, and if not, regime itself. Uh, you could you could certainly make the argument that that the requirements uh, were ambitious, <laughs> um, and and the tools were also uh, quite substantial. I mean, and, and the tool and the tools are impactful, right? We're talking about a uh, a, a unilateral. Um, embargo on, on Iranian oil that manages to significantly dent Iran's exports. We see a couple of years of fairly sharp decline in Iran's uh, GDP. I think to a certain extent, the, the fact that the unilateral sanctions uh, were unilateral, but still quite successful, especially in that early stage of 2019, 2020, was, uh, was something that maybe went beyond what some people expected because the, the, you know, the, it, it wasn't, the, there was no buy-in from the Europeans. There was no buy-in from the Chinese or Russians on these sanctions. But especially early on, when it comes to oil exports and other things, they, they did have a serious impact. What they didn't yield was, um, the Iranian capitulation on on a better nuclear deal, ballistic missile deal, or, or regional rollback. And in fact, we started to see Iran respond to the U.S. Uh, maximum pressure campaign, especially from 2019 on, uh, with kind of a two-pronged counter-pressure campaign. So one side of that is the, uh, the, the breaching the nuclear agreement beginning in 2019, where Iran uh, says, look, we've stayed in this deal for, for a year. We gave the Europeans a chance to um, uh, give us the economic dividends that the deal was intended to provide, which U.S. sanctions are precluding. They haven't delivered on that. And so, and so Tehran starts to breach the nuclear. And then on the regional, we start to see a kind of whole of region um, uh, escalation where, um, you know, I'm sure you'll recall, you know, we started to see tanker attacks uh, in the Gulf, we started to see attacks on Saudi Aramco facilities. We started to see uh, 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 attacks against uh, U.S. forces uh, uptick in, in places like Iraq. And on a couple of occasions came 
you know, closer than, than, than is at all comfortable to, to, a, to a shooting war. Um, now that was avoided, but um, I, I think the, 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 the Trump administration's approach was, you know, if I referred earlier to the, to the Obama administration seeing a hierarchy of threats and putting the nuclear on top and trying to triage that threat, um, the uh, Trump administration going for a uh, across the board expectation of moderation in Iranian behavior using uh, a combination of, of economic and, and diplomatic pressure. Um, and I would argue that um, while the, the tactics did have an effect in terms of you know denting Iran's economy, if you look at the um, if you if you look at what the demands were and how many of them achieved, I think you'd, you'd be hard pressed to to make a case for uh, tangible successes. So maximum pressure instituted by the Trump administration, not successful even on its own terms, and you also have. Uh, right around that same time, a, I guess, covert or not so covert campaign by Israel and its intelligence services against Iranian nuclear scientists and nuclear facilities. Um, how did that go for, for Israeli efforts? Well, again, there's precedent here. Um, you know, under the Obama administration, there was, uh, you know, massive uh, cyber attacks, Stuxnet against Iranian nuclear facilities. And then, uh, as, as you mentioned, under, um, uh, under the Trump administration and continuing uh, into the, into the uh, Biden administration, we see a string of uh, reported, but often not uh, officially acknowledged, um, operations against Iranian nuclear sites and Iranian uh, uh, nuclear personnel. So there's uh, a couple of attacks on the Natanz facility, uh, which is a you know key enrichment site. And then in November of uh, 2020, so after the after the U.S. elections, but in that transition period to the Biden administration, um, there is the. Um, the Israelis reportedly are uh, behind the killing of a senior Iranian nuclear scientist named uh, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. And the, the father, considered the father of Iran's nuclear program. Considered one of the key figures, especially in some of the uh, past uh, potential weapons-related work that Iran had undertaken in the early 2000s. He was someone that had been on in, in the Israeli crosshairs, name-checked by Prime Minister Netanyahu in, 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 uh, in public and you know mentioned in IAA documents as someone who was a fairly senior figure. Um, but... Uh, Fairly quickly, what the, the Iranians uh, pass a law that um, calls for an across-the-board nuclear escalation in response to this uh, killing. And um, a few weeks after uh, Fakhrizadeh is killed in November, uh, in January, uh, Iran uh, raises enrichment levels to 20%, which is one of the things this law um, obligates. It starts to limit IAEA inspections uh, and k- takes out a, a couple of other steps. So I think the, the overall um, uh, sense that you get from looking at the track record of these, uh, again, alleged uh, Israeli operations is that they, they do reflect a, a quite remarkable degree of penetration and, and um, awareness of what transpires at Iran's nuclear sites, uh, who the key people are. Um, but again, if you if you look at the, the the strategic outcome, the reality is that at every stage almost, Iran 
has not rolled back its nuclear program or even seen major delays as a result of these operations, but at almost every step um, has uh, responded by an escalation. In the, in the, in, after Fakhrizadeh, it was to 20 percent. In, in April of uh, 2021, there was another attack at the Natanz facility, and the Iranians 48 hours later responded by increasing enrichment again. Uh, this time to 60%. And that was, you know, literally in the first couple of weeks that these negotiations were, um, to revive the deal were, were uh, underway. So I think that you can, you can look at it and, and say that, you know, the, the, the capabilities are uh, remarkable for how, um, how closely they, they, they seem to be able to uh, track uh, some of Iran's nuclear activity and uh, the awareness that, that there is of uh, the facilities. But um, the Iranian response has more often than not been to um, respond in, its, in kind by stepping up nuclear activity rather than uh, putting it on hold or, or rolling it back. Right. Uh, remote control AI machine gun robots on a highway outside Tehran, allegedly, reportedly. Reportedly and allegedly took out uh, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, that's right. But I mean, look, the, the thing also is that even at the time, um, the Rouhani administration had uh, was was telling uh, its critics, there, there were a lot of critics of the deal in Tehran, as there are in Washington. And after uh, Trump left the agreement, uh, there were a lot of people uh, among the conservatives and the hardliners in Iran who were saying that Rouhani was slow rolling the response, that he was not you know, responding to the pressure strongly enough, that they were dragging their feet on the counter pressure campaign, especially on the nuclear side of it. And, and after Fakhrizadeh's killing, Rouhani was basically uh, telling people like, you know, don't you know, don't overreact to this because it, it, it could have, uh, you know, bad consequences if, if Tehran o- responds in, in a way that would be seen as a provocation. But there was this kind of percolating uh, uh, train of thought in uh, among some of the hardliners that, you know, the Rouhani administration had been too slow and, and too weak in responding. And this, the, the legislation in the Iranian parliament, in the majlis that was passed and approved from on high uh, after Fakhrizadeh was killed, had been percolating for some time. But it was after that that um, the the conservatives said, "Okay, like this is uh, you know we have to respond in, in in some capacity." And beginning in in uh, January, when they raise enrichment to twenty percent, you start to see that bill actually uh, put in practice. So to sum up, Biden takes office obviously january 2021 uh he states clearly his intention to resume negotiations with iran with the eye of returning to the original deal um give us a sense Nason, of what biden was walking into in terms of iran's nuclear program right so if under obama and i guess the first years of the deal it was i guess curtailed to one degree or another the nuclear program uh what was biden looking at when he took office well, when he took office, I think Secretary Blinken publicly estimated that uh, Iran's breakout time, so that's the time it takes to have sufficient fissile material for a weapon, uh, had dropped from about a year, which, it, which is what it was um, when Iran was fully implementing it, to around three or four months. That's what Blinken says, um, I think, in his congressional testimony in January of, of uh, 2021. Uh, Iran had... Uh, 
exceeded by some margin the JCPOA limits in terms of uh, uranium stockpiles. Um, and it had also, um, in the beginning of January, before the Biden administration came in, raised enrichment from uh, 4.5% to 20%. Um, and there's also a bit of a diplomatic uh, element to this as well, which is that um, the there had been quite a divide, um, as you might imagine, uh, between uh, the U.S. and its European allies on uh, Trump's Iran policy. Um, Biden, you know, came in a few months after the the, the Trump administration had uh, tried to snap back uh, sanctions at the U.N. and ended up quite isolated even from, uh, you know, European allies. So there was an element of um, uh, diplomatic finessing of trying to, you know, be on the same page, especially as far as the Brits, the Germans and the French were concerned on what they all agree was was a key strategic threat. And also an Iranian nuclear program that um, had uh, gone considerably more advanced. Um, and, and, you know, I, I mentioned things like stockpiles and enrichment rates because that's the, the, the fissile material, that's the batter you need for the nuclear cake. But they were also, um, you know, had, had basically had two years of unchecked research and development, rolling out more advanced centrifuges and things like that. And that's that's also a concern because, you know, on some of the the limits that the JCPOA had, Iran was, you know, able to essentially have uh, carte blanche uh, after 2019. And, um, you know, European officials and American officials talk about knowledge you cannot unlearn. If you've had two or three years of working with advanced centrifuges that you otherwise would not have had, if the deal was still in place, you can try to shrink stockpiles, you can try to lower enrichment, but also, you know, they're, they're, every day that goes by, um, there's an element of, of uh, you know, research and development or knowledge accumulation that is much harder to quantify, let, let alone roll back. So that's where, the, where, the, uh, where President Biden came in. He said that, um, in my view, maximum pressure uh, failed to uh, deliver a better nuclear deal. It failed to blunt Iran's regional, uh, regional power projection. It didn't do much for the Iranian people. And so uh, his uh, position was that the US uh, and Iran should uh, come back into mutual compliance with the agreement. And um, after a bit of toing and froing within the administration, in beginning in April of uh, 2021, we start to see the diplomatic train uh, start to pull out of the station um, to an as yet uh, unreached destination. <laughs> Hold that thought. Uh, let's take a little sidebar for our listeners' benefit. Uh, IAEA that you mentioned before, it's the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, essentially the, the international body tasked with, I guess, monitoring the nuclear agreement and other nuclear agreements around the world. That's right. And explain to us, Nissan, uh, we're talking about centrifuges and fissile material and enrichment. Uh, Break it down for us. How how do you? <laughs> I don't want to run afoul of uh, of certain people that may be listening, but how do you build a nuclear weapon, Nissan? Well, so to to put it in 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 the most basic terms, you have a plutonium path and you have a uranium path. Um, the JCPOA essentially blocked off the uh, plutonium path, so you have a um, 
Do you remember, uh, and I'm sure some of your listeners may recall, um, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's speech at the UN General Assembly, I think in 2012, where, where he holds up um, uh, a, a diagram of a, of, a, of a bomb with enrichment. So the Wiley Coyote, the Wiley Coyote uh, cartoon bomb. That's your description, not mine. Um, but yes, um, so you need uh, to build up a sufficient quantity of fissile material. Uh, for weapons grade, you need 90% uh, enriched uranium. Um, so uh, think of uh, think of a nuclear weapon as a as a very nasty cake, uh, and the uranium uh, is the batter that you need for the cake. And uh, centrifuges are how you go about baking it. So uh, under the deal, they had a very very small amount of batter and a very very primitive oven, first generation IR one centrifuges, and that made it very difficult to essentially bake the cake. Um, but, um, the, the more advanced your oven, the greater the amount of, uh, of, of batter, the closer you can come to baking a fully formed cake. Now, a critical thing, especially where we are right now is that you'll hear, I think rightly that breakout time is essentially down to nil. What that means is that Iran is within the margin of error for having sufficient fissile material to create a weapon that is different than weaponizing. So imagine if you have a cake and you've taken it out of the oven, you still need to put on icing, sprinkles, and a candle. Um, but the point that I think Netanyahu actually made that, that is quite relevant for where we are right now is that weaponization doesn't necessarily happen at the same sites that you're aware of. You can take a cake out of, uh, out of the oven and sneak off to a pantry and light the candle. Uh, and I think this is one of the dangers is that the JCPOA focused on limiting the quantities of uh, uranium and making sure that they were properly monitored. Um, but the, the greater the amount of fissile material, the closer they are to that threshold of having in, enough material for a weapon, um, you start to run the risk of some of those uh, materials being diverted and weaponized uh, somewhere else where you don't necessarily have um, uh, eyes on. So you have the, the, the accumulation of fissile material. Once you have the accumulation of fissile material, you go into the weaponization stage. The weaponization stage is basically taking that fissile material, uh, putting it into a, into a warhead, having a delivery weapon uh, ready. Now that process, I've seen estimates you know, between one and two years. And, and to underscore the fact that right now, at least in, 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 in the public domain, uh, nobody, and that includes the CIA and, and allied intelligence agents, Agencies has made a call that Iran is weaponizing. In fact, the the assessment I think that Bill Burns shared is that since 2004, if I'm not mistaken, Iran has not uh, directly undertaken weapons related activity. Um, so what the concern is right now is the potential of uh, having sufficient fissile material that could be diverted or, uh, or or siphoned off into another location where weaponization does take place at a site that we don't necessarily have uh, eyes on. That's a very, very, very well done uh, summary. So to recap, centrifuges are the oven, uh, uranium is the batter, right? 
and the cake is essentially highly enriched uranium, which you can use for a bomb. Yes, leading to uh, leading to a weaponization uh, process that involves icing. And uh, I, I, I'm Sprinkles. sorry, for, I'm sorry for listeners who are or PhDs in in nuclear physics who are rolling their eyes right now. But sometimes these things do get a little bit overly complicated to discuss, and there is a lot of ambiguity around what actually happens. I mean, I think you know. Also, one of the critical things to bear in mind is that we talk about weapons grade uranium weapons grade uranium being 90% and thinking that 60% seems a long way away from 90%. That's not at all true. That The technical effort that needs to be undertaken to get from 60 to 90 is not actually that difficult. It's more of a political decision at that point than a technical decision. Um, so what, what the deal was intended to do was to say that uh, we are going to limit uh, as much as possible for as long as possible um, that fissile material. And um, there are various provisions in the deal that uh, phase out over time, but that key metric of fissile material, of, of how much uh, material enriched uranium and, and to what level Iran can have, is limited under the deal until 2031. So other restrictions like on advanced centrifuge research and development do kick in earlier. But that that key one, which is you know what you actually need, the the, the material you need to put together a weapon, would uh, was under the past deal, might be under a restored deal, something that continues into the next decade. Okay, we'll be right back after this brief message. Israel Policy Forum works to strengthen support for advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to preserve Israel's future as Jewish, democratic, and secure. We provide constructive policy analysis and pragmatic policy recommendations, produce credible research reports, deliver thoughtful and nuanced commentary, build engaging and innovative educational content, and create informational video content covering critical issues. We are trusted as a reliable resource in Washington and the Jewish community. To explore more of our work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, U.S.-Israel relations, Israeli politics, Israeli-Arab regional integration, and the future of the two-state solution, read the Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau's weekly article on current events, visit our YouTube channel for short explainer videos and our 120 Project Israeli election news updates, engage with our young professional network, IPF Atid, or join one of our live video briefings featuring top journalists from the region. Subscribe to receive updates about all of this and more at israelpolicyforum.org slash subscribe. So sidebar over, back to Biden. So we're now early 2021. Uh, negotiations resume. Uh, but that was, what, a year and a half ago. So what's gone on over the past year and a half? And more to the point, what has changed, I guess, in recent weeks uh, to maybe make a deal more likely than it was looking definitely earlier this summer when a deal seemed pretty much dead in the water? Right. Uh, dead in the water, indeed. A, a couple of, a, it was barely uh, six weeks ago where one, uh, one official, uh, Western official, told me that he put the odds of a, of a deal at 1%. But I'll come back to that. Um, so in a in a way it's it's been a very peculiar process throughout this entire um uh adventure over the past year and a half where Iran and the US don't engage directly with each other the Iranians refuse to directly have uh bilateral discussions with the with the Iranians so everything is is mediated 
And you're also negotiating over a return to a deal that's already been negotiated. So those are two quirks of this entire process. In April of 2021, the the P5 plus one um, and, and Iran uh, convened in Vienna, and they started to discuss the process of how the US and Iran would return to mutual compliance. And essentially, that involves three uh, portfolios um, that all have to be um, aligned. One is what sanctions the US is putting on the table, um, what steps Iran would have to take to bring its nuclear program back into compliance with JCPOA restrictions. And then the third one is how you sequence all of these things. Who does what in what order? Uh, the U.S. You know, isn't going to uh, lift every single sanction on the first day. Iran can't get rid of a couple of tons of enriched uranium and, and roll back its advanced centrifuges with the snap of the fingers, right? So there has to be a bit of sequencing. And um, they had made uh, a bit of progress over the first couple of rounds, which went until uh, June, and then Iran had presidential elections, and essentially the process was on hold for five months uh, before the elections and until uh, November, uh, when the Raisi government um, basically dispatched its team um, for what was initially a, a very unconstructive set of engagements, but later on picked up. So you, you had a couple of rounds between April and June, uh, a long pause. And then in November, um, things start to move ahead. Uh, again, in Vienna, initially uh, not going great, but beginning in, you know, especially I think in by, by late February and March, um, things were, were in sight. And I mean, you can even zoom in on a kind of 24, 48-hour period in the first week of March where the European negotiators leave Vienna and they say, our job's done. Um, the, you know, the French, British, and, and German diplomats, essentially their part in the negotiations had been uh, concluded, you know, especially dealing with the technicalities of how Iran would roll back its nuclear program. Um, they were, the, the, the European Union was preparing invitations for the foreign ministerial meeting that would conclude the agreement. Um, this is all 3, 4 March. And then uh, the Russians come in um, with uh, far more sweeping demands uh, on sanctions exemptions, right? Uh, the Foreign Minister Lavrov comes in, and this is, again, a couple of weeks after the, the war in Ukraine starts, and he says, we essentially want a carte blanche that all of our trade uh, and, and interactions with Iran uh, will will not be sanctioned. We essentially want a cordon sanitaire. The Americans and the Europeans say absolutely not. Um, you can have sanctions exemptions on nuclear-related commitments that you're in, engaged with, but you're not getting anything that in, involves a cordon, a cordon sanitaire of, of Russian-Iranian trade. And so uh, a few days later, the EU um, uh, coordinator of the of the talks basically says we need to put these talks on pause. Uh, that's on the 11th of March, uh, and so essentially we see the pendulum swing from seeming very very close to an agreement to uh, to new things coming in. A couple of the the I's that needed to still be dotted and, and the T's that needed to be crossed languishing, and it wasn't until. August, that we actually had all of the sides back in the same place at the same time, uh, which is when uh, in, in, in early August, the um, everyone came back to Vienna. So I think what's changed is that uh, between 
uh, March and uh, August uh, or late June, uh, late July, let's say, um, the U.S. and Iran were still going through the motions of exchanging proposals and and had a had a brief uh, set of uh, indirect discussions in in Doha and Qatar that didn't really make much progress, and we also started to see both of them kind of lean into what a plan B would look like. So the U.S. over the past couple of months has rolled out several tranches of petrochemical and oil-related Iranian sanctions. Um, the Iranians have continued to build up, you know, their 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 nuclear stockpiles. Um, the the West introduced a, a censure resolution at the IAEA Board of Governors. Uh, Iran responded by limiting IAEA access. So we kind of, you know, seemed on the trajectory of, you know, this is what it looks like when there is no deal. The U.S. in, in particular increases its sanctions leverage. The Iranians respond with with nuclear counter leverage. So the, the EU basically uh, made another throw of the diplomatic dice. And um, Bur- uh, Joseph Burrell, who's the EU high representative and serves as the facilitator of the talks, on the 21st of July, basically put to the sides uh, an EU-drafted text that basically says, here's what I see you all should be able to live with. Use this as your common text, and let's see where we can go. And that led to the, um, uh, the, the resumption of physical talks in Vienna uh, for a couple of days earlier this month. And then what we've essentially had since then is the Iranians and the U.S. Uh, exchanging counterproposals with uh, tweaks um, to that text that was tabled by Burrell, discussed in Vienna, and now is where um, the the frame of reference is for for the agreement. And so, in your estimation, I guess two questions. Number one, what are the outstanding issues that are still, I guess, being debated in the two capitals? And then number two, what are what are the actual prospects that they reach agreement and and there is a deal? You know, the the prevailing wisdom. I don't know if you want to call it wisdom, but uh, people imagine that a deal is very close, perhaps days or weeks away. So on the front page of the draft text, uh, which one of the French negotiators tweeted out at one point, um, it says a, a sentence that I've heard every uh, every official I've, I've spoken to from, from various sides of these negotiations um, always stress, which is nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Oh, sounds very familiar from another long-stalled diplomatic process. Well, there you go. Uh, But that's literally on the front page of the draft text. And um, this is one of those places where there there, there are so many moving parts here uh, in a very, very technically complicated uh, dance that it's one of those things where 99% of things can be agreed, but that remaining 1% is usually A, the hardest to fix, and B, without which the other 99% is not going to get done. So um, the the couple of issues that have been, that are on the table are actually issues that have been on the table from uh, April of, of 2021. We may have been able to narrow some of the gaps, but they're also quite you know deep gaps to overcome. Um, so uh, one of the things that Iran continues to insist on is this notion of guarantees, right? The the um, the Raisi administration uh, is well aware that many of its own officials 
absolutely scorched the Rouhani administration for having been too naive um, when Trump withdrew and said, look, you got into a deal with the Americans and look how quickly they turned and, and left. Um, so this issue of guarantees is something that the Iranians are uh, quite adamant on and that the Biden administration is equally adamant that it can only provide to a certain extent. No U.S. administration can bind the hands of a future administration, even if uh, the Iran agreement was uh, ratified in, in, as a treaty in the U.S., that a future administration could still pull out of a treaty. Now, I think from, from the Iranian perspective, this notion of guarantees is, there's two elements to it. There's an economic element and a political element. The, the economic one is that um, their sense is that they've been able to stabilize the worst impact of, of U.S. sanctions, that there were two years of, of you know, 6 7% GDP contraction, but that from mid-2012 onwards, they've been able to stabilize the ship. 2020. 2020, yeah, uh, second half of 2020. Um, and the, the sense is that uh, if you uh, open yourself up to the shock of a second withdrawal, all of that effort that has been made into stabilizing the Iranian economy would be lost, and 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 you'd essentially have to uh, go through that painful uh, contraction uh, once again. I, I'm I'm not sure I entirely buy that argument, um, but it, it's one that I think some Iranian officials uh, do believe in, and it, and it's certainly not to paper over the fact that GDP numbers alone, even if they're positive, uh, paper over. A lot of issues that the Iranian economy still has, uh, inflation, unemployment, currency volatility. Uh, the picture is not rosy, but I think that among the conservatives and the hardliners who are in government, it's one where JCPOA could benefit a bit, but also, you know, uh, they can get by, they can muddle through without it. And again, that, that's an uncertain bet as far as I'm concerned, but that's the economic angle. And the political angle is the one I mentioned before, is that if, if you essentially come into a second agreement with the U.S., uh, and bear in mind, I mean, the JCPOA was the biggest uh, um, move away from fully adversarial U.S.-Iran relations since 1979. Right. It, 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 in that sense, it was pretty significant. Um, and so basically having been abandoned once and then being abandoned again, um, people in Israel will be you know, quite familiar with the term frayer, that if you <laughs> come in and you trust the American, uh, Americans a second time, you will look like a frayer. And that's this this notion of of guarantees an economic and a political. The worst thing in the world, you can't be a fire. You cannot be yeah. a fire. Um, so that that's one of the aspects that's been outstanding. The second, so the the Iranian Iranians are looking for guarantees. Okay, so that's the first one. And again, the Biden administration has said, you know, we can make commitments to what the Biden administration will do if Iran is compliant. We cannot bind the hands of future future administration. And again, if the if the Iranians come in uh, continuing to demand things that go beyond 2025, um, those simply aren't on the cards. Um, the second issue goes back to the International Atomic Energy Agency, where um, the IAEA has uh, an ongoing investigation into past uh, Iranian nuclear activities at sites that they hadn't declared. 
Um, these go back to revelations from uh, the, the nuclear archive that Israel heisted out of, out of a warehouse in Tehran in 2018. Um, and the IAEA has gone to several of these sites and found uh, traces of man-made uranium. It's found evidence of research and development. Again, these are things that um, uh, are uh, not new, but what they are from the IAA's perspective is questions that based on the agency's accounting mandate, it has to clarify. The Iranians have um, were, were uh, meant to resolve some of these issues. They reached an agreement with um, the IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi um, on the 5th of March, again, coming back to that kind of pivotal 48-hour period in early March. Um, and as the negotiations floundered after that, this probe has also not really moved forward, and that's why the U.S. and the E3 tabled a, a central resolution uh, over Iran's lack of cooperation in June. And again, for, for, for the Iranians, there are a couple of reasons why they w don't uh, want to really resolve this uh, or, or that resolving it has certain problems as far as they're concerned. One is that it would validate um, these documents that, and show that it had, in fact, undertaken some research and development activities that have a clear weapons-related uh, angle to them, uh, having said that it had never pursued uh, weapons-related research. Back in, back in the early 2000s, we should make clear. Back in the early 2000s, but also I think because, again, as they see it, uh, it could be a slippery slope where future documents come up and future demands are made, and as far as they're concerned, it becomes... It opens a, a never-ending cycle of uh, inspections and uh, lack of clarity over its past activities. Um, the, the problem here is that there really is no uh, way for the Iranians to get around this without actually making the clarifications the IAEA asks for. The IAEA's mandate is nuclear accounting, and under Iran's uh, safeguards agreement under the non-proliferation treaty. It it needs to to cooperate with the agency on on these issues. The Iranians at this point in the negotiations are essentially saying that we expect the probe to be closed as part of the agreement. The E3 and and the U.S. are saying we'll close it if you are forthcoming and you actually satisfy the International Atomic Energy Agency. But that and the guarantees I think have been two of the, the, um, the issues that have been ongoing throughout. Um, and uh, in negotiations, the, the general rule of thumb can be that, you know, whatever is outstanding towards the end of the process is usually outstanding because it's the hardest to fix, not the easiest. <laughs> and um, again, there, there are, you know, technical ways to square these circles on the IEA that, you know, the, the Iranians could just follow through on the roadmap that they agreed to in March on the guarantees, their limits to what the Biden administration can provide. And um, that, that's just the way it is. Um, so in terms of prospects, um, you know, we've seen this pendulum swing from, you know, near conclusion in March to near total breakdown in June and uh, in early July when, when it really seemed like uh, things had hit had hit a, a point of impassable deadlock um, back to the EU throwing the dice in, in late July and early August with these proposals. Um, I, as a, as a general rule of thumb, um, try not to get into clairvoyancy. 
Um, I think that some of the, like, yes, there has been movement uh, over the past couple of weeks. Yes, we've had um, the most substantive set of engagements that we've had between the P5 plus one and Iran uh, in several months. Uh, yes, the, the markets and, and the, 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 the sense uh, in, in, in the uh, public domain seems to be that we're very close. But again, for the, for, the, for the reason that's written on the front page of the deal, that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, um, you know, even if someone tells you everything will be done uh, tomorrow, tonight can be complicated. Okay. So still not a done deal, which is uh, important to keep in mind because people are acting like it is a done deal and a foregone conclusion, uh, including Israeli officialdom. So the Israeli government uh, obviously has continued the very strong opposition to any renewed deal. Uh, we don't need to get into the particular reasons why, but you hear again and again, and by the way, not only from Israel, uh, constant criticisms uh, of any deal, uh, right? So I think one big criticism is that uh, the deal, like you said at the top, is not longer or stronger than what was promised, uh, i.e., you know, the the longer, you know, the deal ends at a certain point, the so-called sunsets, uh, or stronger, uh, it doesn't deal with, you know, Iran's regional meddling, support for proxies and terrorist groups and its missile program. Uh, you also hear oftentimes that it will give Iran billions, and we've also seen, you know, a trillion figure thrown out there, uh, money to its proxies all around the region. Uh, we've also, I think, seen allegations that Iran uh, is obviously lying and cheating. So what do you, I think, first of all, make of those, I guess, criticisms and counters to, to any renewed deal? And uh, I guess in your opinion too, what, what is the alternative, right, to, to, no, to no deal? Or what is the alternative, I suppose, to, to a deal? Well, I, I think it's funny that you framed it in that way because a lot of those criticisms were there in 2015 and we saw what the alternative was, which is that th this notion that uh, no deal is better than any deal. We, we now see what no deal looks like and no deal looks like an unconstrained uh, Iranian nuclear program uh, with very little uh, success in mitigating non-nuclear non threats. But this is, by the way, this is the Trump post-withdrawal experience. That is, that, that's the Trump post-withdrawal experience. Look, uh, I'm, I'm not going to uh, ever make the case that uh, the, the JCPOA is a perfect agreement. Uh, and I'm also not going to make the case that it's a, uh, it's a peace deal. It's not a peace deal. It's, uh, it's an arms control agreement. Um, so in terms of sunsets and everything, to me, it, it's... it's uh, Shorter and weaker is <clears throat> an interesting criticism. 2031, for example, the deadlines uh, for, for Iran's stockpiling, it's still 2031. It's just that we have essentially uh, had three years of unchecked Iranian nuclear expansion that we're now, now trying to account for. So it, it's not that 2031 has changed, it's that we've moved closer and Iran's nuclear program has moved ahead. Um, so in, in that sense, uh, it is uh, somewhat trying to revert uh, to the to the status quo ante and then essentially go back and see that, okay, now that this deal is in place, 
can it be built upon at that point? Maybe it can, maybe it can't. I think the Biden administration's view is, uh, and, and Biden officials uh, say this, is that we understand, I mean, uh, look at, at how many uh, U.S. administrations have uh, had to deal with the, you know, the, the range of Iranian, quote-unquote, malign activity. It's, it's Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, uh, Biden, right? Like the, the non-nuclear concerns um, are long-standing. Um, did maximum pressure successfully, or even to a certain degree, uh, mitigate against them? Uh, not, not necessarily. And I, I seem to recall uh, an intrepid reporter uh, writing that even according to Israeli assessments, Iran's funding for proxies uh, didn't decrease under maximum pressure, but in some cases increased. I think that that journalist's name was Neri Zilber. <laughs> um, yes, I seem to recall something along those lines. Yeah, according to Israelis, Israel's own intelligence assessments, maximum pressure didn't work even on its own terms. Well, there you go. Um, so again, it, it's a question of um, look at Iran's nuclear program right now and, and where it is. Um, if you regard Iran's nuclear program as an existential concern, as a strategic concern, as a major uh, issue for the global nonproliferation community, um, as a quantitatively and qualitatively different type of threat um, to, to the rest of its uh, activities, um, then you move to the next question of, uh, is this deal better than, uh, does it address the nuclear part of the picture better than the alternative? Um, and in which case you can say that this is a net uh, security uh, benefit. I think that's the way that the Biden administration is approaching it, that if it gives a, a springboard to discuss other issues and, you know, other issues don't also have to be discussed necessarily between the U.S. and, and, and Iran directly, right? I mean, you look at some of the um, nascent kind of um, moves towards normalizing or improving diplomatic relations between Iran and, and some of the GCC countries, um, that can also help uh, dial down uh, regional tensions. You know, if, if uh, the truce between the Houthis and, and the, the, the Saudi government, for example, is able to hold, we would be able to continue to have um, a period of, of several months where a U.S. ally has not been uh, engaged in a, in a, in a very long and, and bloody war that has seen, you know, hundreds of UAV and missile attacks being fired by Iran backed groups against a U.S. ally. That trend line since Ramadan, uh, when the truce started has, has been really interesting. Um, and in, in terms of the, the, um, the financial element, uh, it, it's true that Iran does uh, get sanctions relief. That is what the deal uh, provides. Um, it's also Iran's money, uh, and I've I've seen you know, uh, including some people in in Congress, refer to you know taxpayer dollars and things like that. Um, and I, I I don't want to get into speculation on numbers because they they relate to dozens of variables, including the price of oil, including how quickly Iran's oil would come back on the market and things like that. Um, but uh, would, would Iran receive a uh, financial boost through sanctions relief? Yes, it would. Uh, could that exacerbate some of the non-nuclear concerns that Israel and other regional allies have? Yes. Um, has the U.S., uh, and have the Israelis trying been working on these 
uh, over the past couple of months. I think more than is appreciated. I mean, if you look at um, uh, you know the, the two national security advisors uh, set up a working group on, on uh, drone proliferation, which is, I, I think, one of the more interesting you know developments over the past couple of years of Iran developing and proliferating uh, to its to its various allies, including apparently to to Russia. Uh, drone systems. You've seen Israel's increased integration into CENTCOM, which started under the, the Trump administration. You've seen more military exercises. So I, I, I it's um, I don't think that these are all steps that would uh, you know uh, provide a, a great deal of necessarily comfort that the the non nuclear piece of the puzzle is being addressed. But bear in mind that the nuclear piece of the puzzle. Is a pretty big one. Um, the 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 line you'd hear from uh, Biden administration officials is, uh, "Tell me how not solving the nuclear piece of the puzzle makes anything else easier." That that that's essentially one of the key, uh, I think, arguments that that uh, they would make. And bottom line, uh, there's a lot of criticism about the deal sunsetting, I guess, in a couple of years, 2031, but. If I understand you correctly, we're effectively at 2031 right now. Worse off? Oh, we're worse off, I think, because we we, we also don't have uh, full monitoring and inspections provisions. Um, yeah, and 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 the other thing is that you know every day that goes by, Iran's nuclear weapons, Iran's nuclear program continues to expand. Right in a few days, um, it will, in in mid September, the IEA Board of Governors will will meet again for its quarterly session and we'll get the latest numbers on, on Iran's stockpiles. And I, I expect that they will show continued growth of enriched uranium stockpiles, continued expansion of 60% enriched uranium, continued deployment of advanced centrifuges, including IR6 models that they've been bringing online. And these are happening at a couple of different facilities. So the, 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 the bottom line is essentially that uh, without a deal, Iran's nuclear program continues to expand on a day-by-day basis in terms of uh, size and sophistication, and it continues to be stunted in terms of monitoring and verification. And from a nuclear point of view, that is a profoundly uh, uh, bad place to be in. Um, and so, yes, the, the, the fact that uh, sunsets on stockpiles or in 2031, um, you know, is, is it ideal? Would, would we rather it go further? Yes. Uh, but if it concerns you in 2031, you should be very, very, very concerned about where we are in <laughs> August and September of 2022. Uh, yes. Yes, people should be. Um, and with that, uh, Nesan, thank you so much for your insight, breaking down a very complex and technical issue for us and our listeners. Thanks for having me, Nair. My pleasure. And uh, next time we'll bring you on to assess uh, Arsenal fo- Football Club and its prospects for a top 10 finish. Yeah, we'll move from uh, nuclear arms to gunners. <laughs> to gunners, indeed. Thanks, man. Cheerio. Okay, that was a great Nesan Rafati. Many thanks to him, as always, for his time and insight. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening. And also, have a great long holiday weekend for all those celebrating.